Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Joining us, and good morning again to those of you uh, who are continuing to listen. Thank you for Jane for checking in uh, and sharing her experiences with Samaritan's Purse. Thank you for Reverend Dr. Castro for checking in. Lutheran World Disaster Relief, one of the really important things we do well as Lutherans. Go ahead and let me know um, how is it that you, maybe your congregation, have engaged in disaster relief and recovery in your own community or elsewhere. Love to hear those testimonies and stories. You can text me at 877 877- Nine three three two four eight four. You can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. I want to lead off today with a question uh, about where you are in the Word. So, where in the Word are you today? I am in First Peter chapter 5. These are verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is Peter speaking. This is Peter who walked with Jesus. This is Peter who walked on water with Jesus. This is Peter who was crucified upside down for Jesus. This is Peter calling us to humility, inviting us to trust in God to be God and to trust that God to be good, inviting us to cast our anxieties on on God, the Father, because he cares for us. This is Peter inviting us to be alert and of sober mind, recognizing that the enemy is real and he's not going away. And then turning to encourage us to resist the enemy by, yes, standing firm in the faith and remembering that there are a lot of other people in a lot of other places, believers like us who are suffering in ways that we are not. And then he says, God will himself restore you. Think about that for just a moment. Peter is promising. His testimony is that God himself will restore you. God will make you strong. God will make you firm. God will make you able to stand steadfast, resilient. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen? Amen. All right. First up this morning, uh, in this hour, I've got Dr. Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to talk about friendship, particularly friendship across aisles that might divide or polarize. Is friendship across the aisle still possible in polarized partisan America? Should be among Christians. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Christopher Scalia is one of the sons of former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And um, Christopher has actually co-edited a couple of collections of his dad's works. And I was reading in, I don't even know where this was posted. I don't know. Might might have been Fox News. I was reading um, an op-ed that Christopher wrote entitled, My Father's Relationship with Justice Ginsburg, Best of Friends. Peter Kapsner, first of all, welcome to Mornings with Carmen, and then and then answer the question: um, Do you have do you have many friends who are ideologically really different from you? Well, good morning, Carmen, and uh, yeah, the short answer to the question is yes, I do, and and actually within uh, my family and extended family, there is going to be significant differences politically, and and uh, in those contexts, it's it's almost always uh, interesting and engaging to talk about these different things because there's there's a a bond between us that transcends politics, and and that's a big part of that process of learning how to talk across political lines. Is do you have something bigger? that holds yourselves together. And in, in the case of uh, Bader Ginsburg and, and Scalia and, and the families, is uh, they, they, they had a, a shared affinity, obviously, as Supreme Court justices and, and the tradition and um, sort of the, the, uh, the authority that is required for that position. It, something bigger held them together. And in the case of my family, there is obviously our faith journey in God's kingdom, following Jesus in this world that holds us together. And so we can get into some pretty engaging political conversations, recognizing Recognizing that there's still a bigger uh, purpose that we're serving in the midst of them. And when I read these stories, as you have, Carmen, between these two Supreme Court justices and their families and how they cook together and, uh, and laugh together and read together and did all of that, I, I will say that my heart was 99% warmed. You know, and, and I, I will admit I wanted my heart to be 100% warmed. And, and it really was 99%. There was so much beauty and good that uh, was represented that I just think we need to see more of modeled in our country. We have so little modeling of that right now going on among our leadership. But there was this 1% piece of it, Carmen, and, and I'd even be curious in your thoughts, too, that I didn't quite know what to do with. And that is that when you have political differences, most of the platforms politically on, let's say, the Democratic side or the Republican side are, are based sort of on philosophical differences. And, and what I mean by that is you can argue pretty passionately about the best way to run an economic system? Do you need sort of a fully free market kind of capitalistic sort of system? Do you want something that is a little bit more uh, tax oriented and, and redistribution kind of system? And I've lived in, in both in the free market of America. I lived in a, in a country that had a much higher tax rate in Scotland. And, and you know, within certain parameters, I, I can really see the merits of both. And, and of course, Democrats tend to la- uh, land more on the distribution side, Republicans more free market. And, you know, when you're honest, and you just read that, that verse about humility, if you have a bit of humility, one of the manifestations of humility is you think about the other person's point of view and recognize it's probably not ever going to be 100% wrong. And and so you, you sort of wonder about back and forth. Or you can talk about um, military strategy. Should we be intervening? Should we be trying to make alliances? Should we withdraw altogether? Lots of interesting philosophical conversations I have there. But here's where my 1% is, Carmen, and I don't know what to do with this part of it yet, um, is that when there is one side advocating for abortion and the other side not, and I think a lot of our listeners have probably entered into this in their mind and heart, um, what do you do with that if you're belief is now moving beyond philosophical. And, and it drives me wild when people try to make a moral argument for some of our economic theories uh, and, and some of the other things. They're, they're primarily philosophical ones. But this does seem to be a moral argument. 
and and I don't entirely know what to do. Like, can can you have full freedom in a friendship? When there is something that is uh, truly antithetical to God's kingdom, uh, that has to do with abortion, and and how do you have the the freedom of affinity between all of you, where you can laugh and freedom when you have something that is significantly moral between you? That's the one percent that I think a lot of people struggle with. While at the same time, we do need to pay attention and to uh, cultivate that ninety nine percent in the midst of the one percent. It, it it's a little trickier than than what we might hope for it to be. And and I'd be curious again, like how do you how do you see See that we can do something like that. So my um, my approach, and again, I'm, I recognize that this doesn't necessarily work for everybody because not everybody's wired this way. But I find brutal honesty to be absolutely the best path. Yeah. And when I say brutal honesty, um, you know, I'm recognizing that in order to extend grace to someone, in order to be full of grace, I also have to be full of truth, and I can't just be full of it. Right. And. And the other person has to know that. They have to know that um, I, I believe they have some hell-bound ideas and that I love them too much to let them just go there without my saying, I think that's where this is headed. Like, I, I have to, another person has to know that I actually love them too much to let them just continue um, in, in, in an ideology or in a pursuit that is clearly a, a literal dead end. And, and so, Peter, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm ruthlessly honest with people. Has that meant that in the past people have walked away from relationships with me? Yes, absolutely. Um, three or four or five who, like, immediately come to mind. People who I have been very, very, very dear and close friends with who, um, because I— speak the truth, maybe in the way that I do, they have shut the friendship off from their side. They have walked away. It doesn't mean that I don't continue pursuing them periodically. Um, But it does mean that I respect their right to walk away Mm. Um, because I think Jesus did the same. He let people walk away from him. He did. He indeed did. So I am not interested in preserving a friendship for the sake of the preservation of a friendship if um, if it's built on falsehood. I just am not. So I I am with you that um, sometimes, well, we have to have something that transcends politics. But when we reach the place of uh, of an uncompromisable impasse with another person in this, in, in, in every single one of these scenarios, these individuals tro- chose to pursue a path in life that disregards God's right ordering of relationships. And so in every single one of the circumstances that, that God's calling to mind right now for me, these are people who have gone down in, in, into a very dark path of, of, of homosexuality, bisexuality, or transgenderism. And they recognize that I stand in a place that does not—I I am a Romans 1 girl when it comes to that. I am not going to speak blessing over something that I— that I know I, it would be an act of suppression of the truth for me to mm. say to those individuals, God blesses you and what you're doing, because I know that God has said he does not. Yeah. I, I, and Carmen is so well said, I think, on that. And, and I think if there's a mutual humility, again, back to that in a relationship, even if you're on opposing sides of some of these profound moral arguments, if you if you're in a relationship with somebody who has the humility to say, given the evidence, I'm willing to shift my position. 
I think you can stay in those friendships much easier, even as you are in a different spot, because over time you believe that the truth of God's kingdom is going to win out because truth is that which endures. But when there is a lack of humility and a hardening of position that you see in those Roman ones passages, I think what you just described might be as sad as it is, because uh, it, it is grief and it is disappointment and it is sadness, uh, but there might have to be a parting of the friendship in that moment as well. All right, blessed be the tie that binds. Maybe we should consider that. Blessed be the tie that binds, um, because that's ultimately what's going to transcend politics, and it is the hearts of Christians in love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Peter Kapsner and I are going to return in just a moment. I'm going to ask him, if he were moderating the first presidential debate in less than a week, what questions would he be asking the candidates? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a kingdom. All right, I have been imagining what it might be like to have the opportunity to moderate a presidential debate between the two candidates. I have my list of themes and questions that we would cover. I am asking <laughs> Peter Kapsner to do likewise. Peter, you are the moderator of the first presidential debate. It's taking place in less than a week between the two candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Maybe what are some of the themes you would want to cover or some of the questions you would ask if you had the opportunity? Yeah, so first, I'll say that in a second. But first of all, Carmen, if you were the one moderating the debate, you could go pay-per-view with that. I, I think you could try. I know I would pay a lot of money to watch you moderate these two. <laughs> so. I, and, and, and here's the thing. I could play all I could play all the roles. I could ask the question and then I could give you the answers that I expect <laughs> to hear great. from each candidate. And then you could hear me scrutinize them. I, I would, think that... You know, I don't know. There might be a there might be a Facebook Live opportunity in there somewhere. I love that idea. The, the idea of those two candidates being flummoxed and speechless <laughs> because you can do all three roles would be would be fabulous. <laughs> so okay, so I thought about it because you you guys sent me this question yesterday a little bit, and and obviously the themes of the debate have been released, and I think one of the things that is near and dear to my heart a bit is um, the ongoing assault is far too strong of a word, but but I would say I've seen things change in the different universities um, around this idea of academic freedom and, and what academic freedom is. And, and universities have to be able to demonstrate or prove that they're allowing for academic freedom in the classroom so they can get accredited, so they can get government funding. And what academic freedom invites professors like myself to do is not to teach dogmatically certain kinds of positions, though in teaching in a, in a private institution, you can do more of that kind of thing. But especially in our public universities, you, you are expected to not teach the students what to think because a professor has a really significant position of power with students who are often very disoriented. They're, they're leaving their home for the first time. They're trying to navigate a brand new environment. Uh, they don't really know what to think. And, and when you have an authority figure in the midst of something like that, you are very impressionable in those moments. And so what academic freedom says is that you should be teaching your students um, responsible methodologies for how to come to your positions in life, meaning what is the evidence that you trust? What is, how do you pursue what you think to be true? And too often, Carmen, over these last 10 or 15 years that I've seen in many universities uh, around our country, one that I studied in when I was doing my postgraduate work, is that that academic freedom where you're teaching students how to think instead of what to think really has become, here's what you must think. And uh, we could get into a lot of uh, what those dogmas are then that universities are teaching about uh, how to our students, what they have to think. But so often it has to do with secular humanism. So often it has to do with critical race theory. So often it has to do um, with things that are antithetical to God's kingdom. 
And we can talk about, again, the merits of any of those points of view. But I, I would love to ask a question of the president's then. Is there something that we could do that ties government funding to an institution, that an institution does have to have a, a system of checks and balances that shows that they're really honoring the pursuit of academic freedom and that they, the professors are teaching students how to, or how to go about a, a proper methodology of thinking versus here's what you must think in order to be in. And it, it's both subtle and overt, and I think we see it in the news quite a bit, but it, it's happening a lot, Carmen. So I'd love to see that idea of government funding tied to academic freedom. Oh, that's super practical. That is a really good, that is really good. Yeah, I, you well know, done. I, I can't do all three. I could just ask the question. But, you know, if you were there sitting next to me, then you could begin to comment and we could break it down together. And again, the two of them would have nothing nothing left to say. <laughs> I would want to have like um, uh, each one of them uh, bring forward a, a professor um, who taught them how to think. Right. Because I want to talk to that person. Well, and it's I, I, I love want to it. talk to the person who taught these people how to think. I, I think it's. I'm so going to important. trot out. Who are you going to trot out? Who are you trotting out for yourself? Yeah, for me. Who taught you how to think? Yeah, I know for sure. And I, he was actually just on the Bill Arnold show with me yesterday afternoon. Uh, and Bill, at, at five o'clock, we did a we're doing a salvation series on that afternoon show. And uh, Professor Dr. David Clark used to be the the dean of a seminary that I went to. And Carmen, I actually took about a nine month pause for, in my seminary experience, uh, where just there was too much going on in life, and I thought, can I really finish the rigors of this Master's of Divinity degree? And after that nine months, I went back into the classroom, and the very first class that I had was called Christian Social Ethics. And my professor, what, he was not the dean at that time, but it was David Clark. And he, uh, he started going into all of these really complicated and difficult subjects like war, like economic theory, like sexuality, you, you name it, all of these ethics subjects. And I was just mesmerized in my four-hour class about how he could systematically break them down in terms of here's how here's how you can start walking through these things. Here's how where you spot uh, things that are maybe mm, that that doesn't really hold up. Here's where there's some firm foundation on which to stand. And it was uh, it. it um, completely saved my seminary experience, number one, in terms of just like, wow, I can't believe that you can think through these things as critically as you do. And number two, it gave hope that there was actually truth in the world that we could pursue. And so I would hope if I model anything for my students in the classroom, it's one is that I actually love them. I, I'm not just there to be a professor. I actually really do care about them, uh, number one. But number two, I tell them all the time, you know, I'm going to pour probably six or seven or eight different flavors of Kool-Aid in front of you this morning, and I'm going to give you my best shot at what all the evidence is, but I'm never going to grade you on what um, what you think exactly. I am going to persistently push into how did you get to that position and where are the holes in your argument, because I do trust that God's kingdom does stand as a place of truth in the end. And so when you start poking holes, the only one that you can't ever poke a hole in is the truth in God's kingdom. All right, I just Googled um, mine to see if he's still where he was when. Love it, yeah. Uh, so Jim Miller, and Miller is M-U-E-L-L-E-R, and he's still, he's still in the same job he was in when he <laughs> when he talked. So I don't know if that's good or bad. And I didn't know that when I had him as a professor at the University of Florida, it was his very first year. Like, you don't know that. Wow. I know that now, right? So he was he was uh, fresh out of uh, of Duke in terms of doing his doctoral work. He was a first-year professor at the University of Florida. That's still where he serves. Um, and, and I will describe it this way. So I was in a class that he was teaching on the four Gospels, um, comp you know, uh, comparative. Well, it, 
So here's the thing. I'm at the University of Florida. I'm a business major. I'm getting a finance degree and I'm getting a minor in religion, which a minor in religion at the University of Florida may or may not ever take a glancing blow at Christianity or anything <laughs> Christian or, you know, touch on the Bible because, right, religion is a big subject matter area, particularly at a school as large and diverse as the University of Florida. Right. Well, I don't know um, where Jim Miller is in terms of his personal faith. I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you this. He taught the four Gospels in such a way that I was absolutely seduced by the Scriptures mm. in, a, in a way that I, 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 it continues to be insatiable. If you, I mean, I, so he, he led us to ask questions and explore the scriptures in ways that I had never been introduced to in my church growing up, that I had not been introduced to in terms of, um, in, in terms of other ministries that I'd, you know, been involved in. Um, and, and I've, and I've not stopped. He set me on a quest that has never ended. And so, um, inviting me into the study of scripture beyond that which was devotional beyond that which was right. devotional right. was for me man that was the bait on the hook yeah that was the thing that got me into the scriptures and therefore into a quest to know more and more and more about god and to know god more and more and more and more that persisted today amazing so jim miller uh, shout out to you. I feel fairly confident you're not listening right now. <laughs> and Carmen, oh. I do as we wrap. I know we have to wrap things up. Oh my up gosh, here. we're supposed to wrap. I know, so, but yeah. I just want to say I'm going to continue to advocate that you get that pay per view moderator job <laughs> at one of the debates because I, I mean I would pay three four figures for that kind of thing to watch that theater. Uh, we're going to do that as a fundraiser for something. <laughs> I love it. That seems like a really <laughs> good idea. idea. <laughs> All right, that's Dr. Peter Kapsner, full of ideas this morning. Go fill the uh, the hearts and heads and minds of those students with goodness today. We will right, do. Yep. Thanks, Carmen. All right, Carmen. we got to take a break for Breakpoint. We'll be right back. All right, how many of you are in what the world considers midlife? It's always, it's always a little bit of a challenge, right? Because um, none of us really knows what midlife is or where we are in terms of the days assigned to us. But let me just say, if you're anywhere in sort of the broad sweep of 40 to 80, you know, you're somewhere in midlife. Maybe 40 to 70, maybe 45 to 75. I don't know. You get the idea. All right. Um, it's that stage of life where we are pressed from all sides, where there are demands upon us, not only from our families, but from our places of work. Um, our bodies are changing. Our relationships are changing. The demands of midlife forced us to ad adjust and adapt. And that puts new pressures on our marriages. And so we're going to talk next with Dorothy Littell Greco. She's written a new book that I think you'll really enjoy, Marriage in the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges, and Joys. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. Jesus will tailor a response to your precise need. He's not a fast food cook. He is an accomplished chef who prepares unique blessings for unique situations. When crowds of people came to Christ for healing, one by one, he placed his hands on them and healed them. Jesus could have proclaimed a cloud of healing blessings to fall upon the crowd. But our Lord is not a one-size-fits-all Savior. He placed his hands on each one, individually, personally. A precise prayer gives Christ the opportunity to remove all doubt about his love and interest. The challenge you face becomes a canvas upon which Christ can demonstrate his finest work. 
So offer a simple prayer and entrust your problem to Christ. Remember, friend, you are never alone. This is Max Lucado. Greco, she is the author of Marriage in the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges, and Joys. Dorothy, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, and thanks for having me on the show. Good morning. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. It's, um, it's fun to have you here. Um, describe midlife um, and why many of us experience midlife as um, a pressure cooker, um, we feel, I mean, there's more than just the sandwich generation, although that's a part okay. of the conversation. Talk with us about the the pressures that result in experiencing midlife. How many people experience midlife as a crisis? Yeah, maybe even a series of crises is more mm-hmm. accurate. Mm-hmm. Successive well, and simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Our mm-hmm. bodies are slowing down and, and there's sort of a reverse adolescence that's happening. Um, if we're parents, our kids need us in very different ways than they did when they were younger. They still need us, but the, it, it shifts quite a bit from mostly physical to more emotional and spiritual. Um, our, our parents tend to pass away during this time frame, which is, you know, if you've gone through that, there's nothing like saying goodbye to your parents. It's, it leaves a hole that nothing and no one can fill, really. And then there's financial constraints for many of us, particularly if we have kids in college, because the, you know the, the, the price tag for college just keeps going up. Um, and then there's shifts in the workplace that can also often leave us confused and demoralized, feeling like, you know, have we, as uh, I think Barbara Haggerty said, have we passed our expiration date? Um, younger people are nipping at our heels. They're quicker and more adept often at um, the technological component of work. So there's just there's external stressors, there's internal stressors, and then you put that together in the context of a marriage where the other person may be going through some of the same things, and it it can be very it can be a very challenging season. So you offer us some um, some words that I think um, we should talk about these these words because. The word resilience in particular comes up a lot. You use the word malleability. Um, mm-hmm. I have uh, I have and been encountering the word flexibility um, mm-hmm. or reflexibility a lot in, in conversations about many, many things. The third word is engagement. So pick whichever one of those three you want to start with, and let's work our way through these because that's really, you know, these are the three qualities that you describe as being imperative during this season of life. I think that that's true, and certainly they're not the only three, but when I look back over, you know, I'll be 60 in just a few weeks, I look back over the last 20 years, and I think these are three that really characterize what we need in this time period. So malleability is... um, uh, directly related to how much pressure we can stand without, if you were talking about a metal, without it snapping. So what's, how, how flexible can we be? Um, and the, that stress that gets put on us can result in something exciting and something new, but it can also result in us feeling like we are going to snap or we are going to break. And then, um, you know, malleability is the willingness to be stretched and changed and resilience really determines how quickly are we going to bounce back after something difficult or trying has happened. And uh, Sheryl Sandberg, when she was writing in her most recent book, talked about it as the strength and speed of our response to adversity, right, which means we don't quit. We have things that are difficult and painful that happen to us. We process them. We grieve. I'm not by any means suggesting that we should, you know, 
pretend it didn't happen or deny it. We face it, we deal with it, we grieve it, but then we keep going because there there is no time for us to just um, sit on the sidelines and sulk or cry. Like there's too much going on and, and we're really needed. And then engagement is simply, you know, exactly what the word means, that we have to pay attention and we have to be actively involved in what's happening in all components of our life, whether it's parenting, caring for our kids, taking care of ourselves, nurturing our marriage, um, trying to stay on top of the changes in the workforce. You know, I work as a photographer as well. And the way that that medium has changed over the past 15 to 20 years is staggering to me. And every time I feel like I'm on top of it and, okay, I know what I'm doing, then there's another advancement that then I have to learn. So there's there's just a lot of that in, in this time frame. I am talking with um, Dorothy Greco. Dorothy, do you like to use Littell in the middle? Sometimes I like to be Carmen Fowler LaBerge for people who remember Carmen Fowler, but... I'm Carmen LaBerge to most people. Do you like Latell in the middle? I don't need it to be said. The reason that I chose to put it on um, on the books is because we I come from a family of all girls, and I felt like I wanted oh, to see? leave my family name in as part of the legacy. So me too. That's why mine's in there as well. There you go. Yeah. I love that. All right. There's a little, little shared thing there. All right. Marriage in the middle, embracing midlife surprises, challenges, and joys. Dorothy Latell Greco and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Dorothy Greco, we're talking about her new book, Marriage in the Middle Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges, and Joys. And yes, I graciously, uh, by the by the grace of InterVarsity Press, have copies to give away. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I need some help at this midlife point, um, not only in my life, but in my marriage, please text the word book to 877-933-2484. So you're going to text the word book to 877-933-2484. I've got several copies in studio to give away. Um, Dorothy, talk with us a little bit just about the compressed experience that you and your husband have had um, because I think that, you know, telling telling our own stories is often just helpful to others in, in helping us recognize all of those various pressure points in our own lives. And then, you know, the witness and testimony that there's hope. Why in each chapter, well, chapters two through 10, I start and end the chapters with an interview with an actual couple and they share their stories. Every one of them is different, but every one of these couples, it's very diverse in terms of ethnicity. Um, they share the, the struggles that they have gone through during this time frame, how God has met them and how they've come through it. So though the interviews are all very intense, they're also super hopeful. So for us, it was um, eight years ago, and we were driving home, having dropped off our eldest son at school out in Michigan. And um, the hotel that we stayed in uh, left us a little gift. We got bed bugs um, mm. on the way on the way home from that very same trip. Like we were just three hours from the hotel, just about to cross the Mass New, New York line, and my um, sister-in-law called to say, "Hey, uh, mom's in the hospital, and they don't really know why." And that was the beginning of. Um, Several weeks later, she was diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer, and she died very quickly. Um, it was just a six weeks six week process, so she she never came home from the hospital. Then our um, I don't even talk about this in the book. Our next door neighbor had a tragic accident, and he died. 
Uh, our son took a really hard shot to the neck playing football and had a very bizarre neck and throat injury with a concussion. And so he was out for multiple weeks. And then the, the thing that perhaps affected us for the longest period of time was the church that we had been part of um, for 15 years where Christopher, my husband, was on staff. Um, we just felt like it was time we had to leave. Uh, and that was an incredibly excruciating experience. We didn't want to go, but we felt a clarity from the Lord that our um, beliefs didn't anymore line up with uh, the folks who were at the top. Um, so, yeah, it was just on, on every side, we were feeling stretched and pulled and we were grieving the losses and trying to figure out, you know, for, for my husband to leave the church meant he didn't have a job. Um, and we had one kid in college and one who would soon be following his brother's footsteps. So it was it was an excruciating season for us. And yet um, you survived. Talk, talk with us about the commitment that is required um, as a wife, the commitment that was required of your husband, um, the kinds of conversations that you had that maybe were different than it might occur to us to have. Well, first, I'll start by talking about the mistake that we made. I feel like that we processed <laughs> for too long. Um, did we make the right decision to leave the church? There were there were various components along the way that we thought, oh, we could have done this differently. So I think that we got a little bit stuck in regret, as opposed to feeling a sense of clarity of no, we feel we feel completely confident that the Lord was saying it's time to go, and 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 then believing, holding on to the reality that He's going to provide for us. It might be a last minute thing, but He will come through for us. So that was our mistake: is over processing and getting stuck in the regret and the loss. The conversations that we had that were fruitful, where we were able to encourage each other about God's faithfulness to us in the past. You know, I talk in the book about stones of remembrance, those places in our lives where the Lord has come through unequivocally, when we can look back and say, that was God, and nobody can take that away from us. So that was really helpful. And then thinking about where is it that the two of us want to go as a couple, both in terms of our professions, but in terms of how we treat people, how we spend time with people how we parent. Um, so the word that I use to talk about that is telos, which is, you know, just a sense of where are you going and how are you getting there? So for us to be mindful of God's work in our life, of God's call on our life, and then of the ways that uh, he has uniquely placed us in a position where we can serve and, and love on the people in our midst. All right. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that um, becoming marriage visionaries. I want to talk mm -hmm. about being able to look beyond where we've been and where we even are now to a future together filled with hope. I mean, one of the things that my husband and I just continually say to one another is all the way home. Mm. It, it, we're not we're not having any conversation that is not acknowledging we are in this all the way home to the father's house. That's and great. so I love that. it, it, it helps us um, put down sometimes a marker when it feels like we are awash in challenges. Um, yes. And so just to be able to look at one another and just affirm we're in this together all the way home to the father's house. That, and, and knowing that and knowing that about him and him knowing that about me, I mean, we can weather anything. Yes, it gives you a great deal of confidence, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes, I think for us, the two questions that we asked ourselves is, what are we aiming for? 
and how does each part of our lives contribute to this goal? So there's the the overarching goal that we, as anyone who really claims to be following Jesus has, it's just to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And obviously our spouse is our closest and most enduring neighbor. So the call is not, you know, to love the people in the church more than we love the person who's sleeping in bed next to us. And sometimes, frankly, that's a harder love. Um, mm-hmm. Because we're so aware of the our spouse's limitations and the ways that they've hurt us, so it's a it's a combination of being able to really dig into what are those what are those two calls that we all have, and then um, sort of splicing out what's the unique call that the Lord has on our lives in this season. Because it's not always the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes we are focused on one particular thing. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and then the season changes and we move on to something else. So for us, uh, many, many years ago, we did some prison ministry with a team of people from our church and we loved it. We felt totally energized by it. Um, and then I had some health issues. We had young kids, you know, life just got in the way. But then recently when our youngest went off to college, we both thought, okay, it's time, let's go back. And so we have been up until the pandemic, we have been doing, um, a weekly service in the local men's prison, and that we feel a, a strong calling from the Lord to do that, even though it's a tiny thing. You know, it's it, it, in the scope of the universe, it feels like it's nothing because we're not affecting systemic change. But nevertheless, we're showing up, we're telling these men, we're showing these men that we care about them and that the Lord loves them, and and that feels like a really meaningful calling. And let me affirm that that you know. That's an eternal, there's eternal value in showing up and bearing witness to the love of God, um, particularly, you know, to people who may feel as if they've, they're disconnected from society and friendship and family and faith organizations right. in ways that are really, really significant. So let me encourage you, don't underestimate the, uh, the value of what you're doing there. It's, um, it's profoundly significant. Um, all right, so this is an excellent. Uh, let me just encourage everybody. This is a this is an excellent book. Um, if you are midlife, and I'm going to let people define that however they will. Uh, <laughs> maybe you're 40, maybe you're 50, maybe you're 60. You may not live to be 120, but you're still midlife. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you're midlife. You're married, and you want some encouragement. This is it. Dorothy Latell Greco. The book is Marriage. In the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges, and Joys. And yes, I have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And I understand that you're a dog person like me, and my dog is old. And so that is a coming transition that I am not looking forward to. Me neither. Me neither. I just dread. I just dread it. Right? I know. So I'm going to grieve. I'll grieve with those who grieve in that moment. So thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a great way to start the day. Totally delightful. All right. We'll be right back. So thank you for those of you who have reached out during this hour on the text line or via email. Keep that communication coming. Uh, Love to hear where you are in the word. Love to hear those organizations that you've been engaged in on the front lines of disaster relief and recovery uh, in this country and around the world. I thank you for those testimonies. It's always it's just great to know you a little a little bit better. Um, And I hope that you feel like you are knowing me better and better as well. Uh, All right. We um. 
we're going to continue pressing ourselves individually and corporately into our calling to love God and love neighbor. We're going to love the people in our households. We're going to love uh, the people in our communities. Don't forget to be loving on your pastor and your church leaders in these days. They've really difficult jobs and challenges set before them. Um, And we are all, let me just acknowledge in advance, we are all already fully equipped for the good work that God has has prepared in advance for us to do today. So whatever good work it is that God has prepared in advance for you to do, he has also supplied everything sufficient to accomplish his calling. So walk forward in faith, uh, confident in the Lord our God to be good. Cast all your anxiety on him. Love him up and love others in his name. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.